to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Drew Dolan. And he has over 20 years of experience in development and construction, where his focus has been on structuring real estate investments, joint ventures, and capital management. And previously he was the president of Titan Development, where he managed Titan's self-storage and multifamily divisions. In 2017, he helped them launch their real estate fund, which was a $112 million fully discretionary fund focused on ground up development. And so he has a ton of experience. He's going to talk to us a little bit about the self-storage base, the fund, the structure. And so thank you for being on the show today, Drew. Welcome. And how are you doing? Thanks, Eileen. I'm excited. This is awesome. So Drew, can you give us a little bit more insight into your background and how you got started with real estate? I got an engineering degree. But I was one of those engineers that you were so deep into the degree and you realized I didn't really want to be an engineer that I had to actually finish it up. I had tremendous work experience. So I had an internship at Intel, internship at Boeing, the largest copper cable producer in the US. I had all these really cool job experiences and they really did one thing for me. They taught me what I didn't want to do. And so I think I encourage, you know, young people to go out and take internships or co-ops or, you know, work for free somewhere because it'll tell you, do you like it or do you not like it? But I um, got the engineering degree and I got approached by a company called Train that designs and sells air conditioning. And this is, you know, big chillers for data centers and large commercial projects. And they only hired engineers to do their sales you know, to help their customers design systems, you know, to help their customers design systems. But what I loved about it, it was really completely opposite from my perception of what an engineer was going to do, which is just sit in a cubicle and, you know, work on problems. It was very much a sales job. I got to go out and meet people. It was 100% commission from day one. And In my five years doing that, I met a real estate development company, and I really loved what they did. They were having more fun. They seemed to be definitely making more money. They were easier to deal with. And I just gravitated, like, I want to go do that. That seems really neat. So I had a a lot of interviews because, you know, as a, I think I was 28, I really didn't have any marketable skills. No developer really cares about air conditioning. So there wasn't really anything special I had other than sales, you know, and this bit of tenacity. And so I ended up taking a job. It was an 80% pay cut from the job I just had. And I spent two years learning, just learning everything I could. And I think it, you know, Two years learning, and I would say it took me five years before I was really adding value. So, you know, the reality with real estate, it takes a long time. There's a lot of learning that never ends. 80% pay cut. It's so interesting because sometimes I've heard the expression, sometimes you have to take a step back before you can take several steps forward. And for you, 
when you took that pay cut from 80%, like what made you confident that you were going to recoup all of that and more going into the development space? I believed in myself and I loved real estate. And when you love something and from day one, I owned everything. I stepped in and you know, really controlled and owned and always raised my hand, always wanted to do more. And so I think it's just this faith in you that you can do it. And when you love something, the ability to be successful is just so much easier. The people around you, when you made that decision, did you get a hard time from the people like, you know, your family members, the people surrounding you? And then how did you not let their opinions impact what you knew was going to be the right path for you? Yeah, it's a great question. My girlfriend at the time, who later became my wife, she was going through a career change herself. She went from marketing and PR to teaching. And that's an interesting change, which is not for the money at all. Nobody leaves marketing and PR to make more money as a teacher. We both supported each other in what her goal was to do something different and my goal. I will say from my parents' perspective, they were rather supportive, but I didn't necessarily come from a family of long line of entrepreneurs. It wasn't like there was businesses handed down or real estate handed down. It was very much from scratch, very much self-made. And so I think there was this opinion that it's not safe or go get a job that has great benefits. And having been in commission sales and knowing that the harder I worked, I came out of that job with train with just so much confidence because I knew the harder and smarter I worked, the more money I made and that I could take that recipe into the commercial real estate space. And the job at train, it wasn't creative. You're just repeating, doing the same thing again and hopefully doing it better, creating relationships. But that's, it's so different than commercial real estate, which is, it's the most creative industry I think anybody can get into, you know, if you seriously want to make money, because you and I will look at the same project and you'll handle it completely different than the way I'll handle it. And you could be more successful, but I'm successful too in what we were trying to achieve. And so I just love the creativity. And in real estate, you never get faced with the same problem or situation again. Everything's unique. Everything has a unique set of circumstances. But what you're doing, and it's why I think it takes five years, is you're building up this database of good decisions and bad decisions. And you certainly learn more from the bad decisions than you ever do from the good decisions. And so as you're building up this database, you're calling on all those experiences and saying, I did this here and that there. What's the best answer for this situation? And that's one of the really cool things about real estate is you never stop learning. And I think you always get better. In those two years that you just spent educating yourself, diving in, figuring out the business, where you wanted to go, how it all worked together until you actually started making money from that point in time, was there a certain situation or event that had happened where it changed how you saw your business and how you were able to start making money? Or was it kind of like a gradual compacting of effect over time? 
Yeah, I don't think there was any one magical moment, but when you put that first deal together, when you have an idea and it comes to fruition, that light bulb goes off and you know you can do it again. And in real estate, if I have a good idea today, it might be five years before I get paid. And that's if all these other thousand decisions get made correctly. And what I do appreciate about real estate is there's very few fatal errors. I mean, maybe if you borrowed too much money at the wrong time or you had the wrong equity partner, those can be fatal. But there's a lot of way to solve problems in real estate because you're going to get thrown challenges. You had no idea were even out there and you can solve those in so many different ways. And I think the hardest thing about real estate is people, investors, developers think they're going to make money tomorrow. And that just doesn't happen. I mean, maybe you get lucky and we've gotten lucky, but you've got to be in the business to get lucky. And if you're lucky on your first deal, it means you're going to be unlucky on your deals coming after that. So it does take a long time to be successful and make money. So fast forward from that time period to like where you are today, share a little bit about how far you've come. What's your focus now? Yes. So I really gravitated toward equity raising and deal structures because I got to touch in in structuring deals. You get to touch a little bit of everything, the debt, the construction, general contractor, the design, and then you get to go sell the project to equity partners. And you better believe in it yourself if you're going to sell the equity. So I really gravitated toward that. And I loved that side of the business. My career in real estate has been very diverse. Multifamily, senior living, hospitality, retail. And that can be really good, but it also can be challenging too, because you never get to be an expert at any one thing. Because senior living is completely different than self-storage. Senior living is an operating business that just uses the real estate to make money, but it's an operating business. Self-storage is a piece of real estate that has a small operating component to make money. You know, it's all about the real estate. So I got a lot of exposure to many different asset classes, which made me attracted to some and not so excited about others. I formed DXD Capital with my partner about two years ago with this thesis that data could drive investment in self-storage at a scale and sophistication that you couldn't necessarily take advantage of in other asset classes. And I'll tell you why. It's because self-storage really is a commodity product. You know, if you wanted self-storage tomorrow, you care about how close is it to your home? What's the price? And is that unit size available? And you don't care whether it says extra space or public storage. In reality, they might want you to care, but you really don't care. And so we had a thesis that you could use data and they had a tremendous amount of data, my partner did, around self-storage. And being a tech company, we knew we could build tools that allowed us to analyze at scale self-storage opportunities. And so to me, I'm spending the second half of my career completely focused on one asset. And I'm excited because 
I know to be focused and to be a real pro, it does take time. And that's what I was excited about in the second half of my career. When you started two years ago, we were just at the beginning of the pandemic and everything was going on. Were there any concerns as you were getting into pandemic, focusing on the self-storage space, building up your business during that time and to be able to grow and be able to flourish in the middle of something that everybody was unsure of what might happen? Yeah, it was crazy. And, you know, it's in the middle of lockdowns. And what I thought was going to be a disadvantage turned into an extreme advantage. And here's why. Our investors, which are typically high net worth and family offices, once that bottom occurred in the market and they started to recover and everybody realized their portfolio wasn't going to go to zero and that assets were actually performing, you know, some assets, especially self-storage, started to perform really well, that they had money to invest. And when we were traveling around the country, which really started like in August, we'd go to San Antonio. Every single phone call we made to meet with an investor, they took it, even if it was two days before, which is almost unheard of because nobody had anything on their schedule and everybody was dying to meet with other people. So we got extreme access to people who would pick up the phone or take a Zoom or show up to a meeting and want to hear the story. And the story we had was extremely unique and extremely powerful and then you look at the performance of self-storage during the depths of the pandemic recession, which it's doing, you know, it did really well. And it's like, okay, this makes a ton of sense. I will tell you, between the pandemic, the recession, and the election, those were three things, three massive headwinds. The one, once that election was over, it's, we had people say, I just can't do it, or I'm just not certain about what's going on. And the election provided some certainty for people. And it didn't matter whether you were a D or an R, if you won or lost. Just that bit of certainty was like, okay, we're moving on. You know, I've never seen an election that was so disruptive for people's lives. And the moment that was over, it would just kind of snowballed from there. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. That's so interesting because you're absolutely right, especially during the pandemic. Everybody wanted some human interaction, some social normalcy in their lives, instead of just sitting at home and where you're unable to go outside, interact the people that you would typically talk to, have that like in-face person-to-person interaction. So you saw an opportunity where other people might have been like on the opposite side and didn't see it as an opportunity and just kind of sat on the sidelines and focus on the negative instead of potential opportunities out there. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of 
we're doing this thing regardless. So it's this confidence in yourself that you can get through anything. So we couldn't reverse course. We were going to do it. It's just a matter of timing. Is it going to take more or less time? But I think it was the best time to start a new business and talk about doing things different. And I'll give you an example. Corey Sylvester, my partner, he's in Connecticut. So we have an office here in, in New Mexico and Albuquerque, an office in Connecticut and an office in Denver. Pre-pandemic, I was really worried about us being spread out because I had never been in a real estate development organization where everybody was that spread out. And so I'm thinking, what's the perception going to be of our investors that we're not all together? And that really worried me. Like I knew it wouldn't affect how we did business, but I knew it could play a part in our investors' mind. And once we all had to work from home and we were all working remotely, it didn't matter. Nobody cared about it one bit. And so the pandemic kind of removed this mental hurdle I created for myself. And it's actually been, I think, one of the best things that's happened to us because we're a company of 25 people. Besides those three offices, we have people in Rhode Island in Miami and in LA and all over the country. We're not hamstring. If you have this mindset where everybody has to be next to everybody else, you're very limited on who you can hire versus just opening up the entire door to, I can hire anybody in the United States or anywhere you want. And as long as you're hiring the right people and they're focused and committed, they're going to do the right thing. And you don't have to babysit them. That's not what I'm going to do is babysit people. And they don't need to be babysat because we set some audacious goals and they get after it. And we built a culture where ambition and enthusiasm is rewarded. And we find people to match that culture. I think it's our step number one in how to be a successful business that's working remotely. One of the things that you mentioned was your story and your background was a little bit different and unique. You focus on the data and the technology and your systems aspect of it. So when you're looking at different opportunities, what kind of data are you evaluating as you're looking at the different self-storage spaces to help determine where you're going to move into, what types of assets you're going to purchase? So from the self-storage perspective on data, Corey, my partner, and DXD founded a company called Radius Plus. Radius Plus is the premier source for everything self-storage. It would be like Axiometrics for multifamily or Star for hospitality. And they kind of fumbled into the business. They were hedge fund, long, short analysts. And they came across the self-storage industry, which is just frankly decades behind other asset classes in its capital sophistication. And they realized that no one had ever mapped where every self-storage facility was in the country. Nobody ever really tracked pricing to the scale that it could be tracked. So they built a business. They identified every single storage facility in the country, all 55,000. They started scraping 35,000 websites every night, those that publish their rate data. And they had this enormous set of data that everybody in the industry was using, you know, bankers, brokers, developers, owners, operators. 
And the more you learn about self-storage and the more you realize this commodity aspect of it, that you can start to think about what is the data that helps you make decisions. So yes, it does start with supply. How much storage is already in that area? How much new storage is coming on? Then you talk about rates. And in the self-storage world, the sophisticated operators, including all the rates, they change pricing every day. So it's like an airline ticket. If you're flying from New York to Vegas on New Year's Eve, it's the last flight and you want the last seat. That ticket's probably going to be expensive. It's the same concept for a 10 by 10 climate controlled ground floor unit in Las Vegas. And because of dynamic as pricing is, you can really see real time what the supply demand balance is. And so what we did is we have all this data that allows you to, from that moment, look back years and say, here's how it's performed. But that's only half the story. It's the data that allows you to look forward. So the way I think about it is, yeah, we can drive a car forward by looking in the rearview mirror, but it doesn't show the mountain that's coming up. You got to actually look through the windshield to see that. And so we started stacking other data sets and population growth, job growth, new single family, new multifamily, migration, traffic patterns, anything you can think of to create this picture of what's demand going to look like and is it going to outweigh supply and does it look like a good market to develop in? So there are certain data sets we rely heavily on more than others, but what is unique about our strategy is just to do it at scale and an efficiency that really nobody else can touch because it's this tech company mentality, frankly. I mean, think about how powerful that is. If you're able to take a 10,000 foot look up above the whole United States and see the pockets of where everything is moving, the pockets of where people are congregating, located, the self-storage spaces, the locations and everything like that, and be able to basically take an eagle eye and zoom in into these particular spots and really specialize and be able to flourish and grow and set your ground in those different types of markets. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Well, you nailed it because what the industry has done, self-storage industry and other industries, is they start with a site. Some broker sends them a site, and then they look for the data to support whether that self-storage project will work or not. And you actually nailed what we're doing, which is stepping way back at 30,000 feet and saying, here's an entire MSA. Where does the data say we should go? And then we can start looking for sites, both on market and off market, in what we know is already the pocket that's going to work based on the data. Now, I will say, there's still a real estate component to it. And the old school real estate guys are all about kicking dirt and seeing a site with our multifamily partner to look at our first ground up project, it was all about seeing it and standing there and getting a feel for it. And it was a yay or nay based on the experience of our partner who had done very well. And I trusted him because when you build 2000 projects, you deserve some credibility. But 
versus, you know, what we're doing is finding the sites where the data matches and then going and seeing there's a real estate component that can't be ignored. What's the visibility? What's the access? What's the signage? What are the neighbors around the site like? And you really got to dive into those. So I will caution everybody to say, it's not just about data. You still have to know the real estate can be successful. Yeah, absolutely. So Drew, what is next for you and your company? Well, we just raised a $35 million GP fund. So our first fund was focused on ground up development. That was $53 million. Our second fund is a GP fund. And can you get into a little bit of what a GP fund is really quick? Yeah, happy to. In the first fund, we were 100% of the equity in all but one project. What we found in raising that fund, which is a discretionary fund focused on ground-up development, is there are a lot of groups that either can't or won't invest in funds. They don't want to give the manager discretion. They need to say yes or no to deals, individual deals. And that's something that they had to pass on for Fund One because we were having discretion. No matter how good our pipeline was, there was still discretion involved. So what we did is we raised a GP fund. And think of it this way. The GP fund will be 10% of the equity. And then we'll go out and raise 90% on a project-by-project basis. So all of a sudden, at a 10%, 90% ratio, a $35 million GP fund is really $350 million of equity. You pair 35 with 315 on a project-by-project basis. And so it gives us enormous runway. And what it really does for us and our investors is it allows us to be more flexible. So we can do value add for those investors that want more cash flow. We can still do ground up for opportunistic. We can do 1031s if an investor wants to selling something and wants to 1031 into one of our properties. We can take advantage of opportunity zones. And so it's this idea that if you can provide an investor with flexibility to meet their goals, you're going to both be more successful. And so that'll take us around two to four years to deploy. And for us, it's to continually create additional tech, additional advantages, additional opportunities for us to be a better and better investor. And that process never ends. There's never a, we've achieved this moment. And there's never a silver bullet. With all these different things we do, it's not like we can just deploy this one bullet. We got to deploy them all. And markets change. Mm-hmm. Self-storage, it's done very well, but it'll be overbuilt and always gets overbuilt. And when that happens, it means your project takes twice as long to lease up at rates that are half the price that you thought they were going to be. And so that's the danger with self-storage. And anybody that hasn't done it, They'll experience what it's like to be in a market that gets overbuilt. And you really got to have the capital and the staying power to do what is one thing that's really interesting about real estate is time does solve a lot of problems with real estate. If you have the time, if you structure your deals with enough time. It's one of the more forgiving industries. Certainly. And one where... You don't get to follow this one recipe to be successful. 
you can add a little more salt or a couple <laughs> more chocolate chips. It just might taste better or taste worse. Who knows? <laughs> You're still going to eat it. So Drew, how has real estate investing impacted your life? When you left corporate in your late 20s, taking that 80% pay cut to follow your dreams of going into real estate to where you are now, how has it impacted your life? I would say the most significant thing is it put my destiny in my hands versus I was watching horrible bosses <laughs> on the plane, which is so, you know, it's, we've all had one of those, you know, really strange or horrible bosses. But for everybody out there that doesn't think your destiny is in your own hands, you just need to change something about your life or how you're looking at it or what you're going about. That's, I think, what excited me so much about real estate is that the harder I work, the smarter I work, the more relationships I built, the more I just showed up, the more I could follow my goals and dreams and make money along the way. And if there was one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be? I would say that, and I touched on it earlier, it does take more time. And just because your pro forma looks fantastic, whether it's realistic or not, you're going to make all this money in six months or 12 months. Be careful and be cautious and structure your deal for what goes wrong. Don't structure it for, oh, what if cap rates go down by 50 basis points or rents are up 10%? Oh, look how much money. You need to look at it from... What happens if cap rates go up and rents go down and the price of debt goes up? Am I still going to be successful? Can I still get out of this? Can I still return our investors' money? And that's really, you know, that focus on the downside. I think it's hard to learn because by nature, us as developers or real estate investors, we have one thing in common. We're all optimists or we wouldn't be in this business because we would never do what we do if we weren't optimists. But you got to add a bit of pessimism and realism into everything you do. You plan to fail, but at the end, don't fail. <laughs> you put all these contingencies in place and you plan for it, knowing that you're going to do whatever you can so that you don't end up failing. Yeah. A good friend of mine once said, if you plan for the downside and take care of the downside, the upside always takes care of itself. You don't even have to worry about it. It'll just be there. Well, Drew, this was incredible. I so appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your story with us and our listeners. And so for those who also want to find out more about your company, what you're doing in this space, where can they go to find out more? Yep. Go to dxd.capital no.com, just dxd.capital. You can sign up for when we send out uh, information or if you want to think about being an investor, you could definitely sign up there and hit me up on LinkedIn. That's where so much business is happening. So many connections occur. And I love LinkedIn. It's a 24-hour networking site. <laughs> Have to be. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Drew. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Eileen. You're great. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? 
We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.